Welcome to the Get Your Donut Podcast. We're here to exchange our consumeristic Christianity for a life fully surrendered to Christ, and to never let our faith be as simple as grabbing coffee and a donut in the lobby. Let's do this. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Get Your Donut Podcast. I am your host, Noah Reed, and here on the show, uh, every week we seek to challenge uh, and equip ourselves to reject the consumeristic version of Christianity that has so easily uh, invaded and persuaded our country uh, and our churches uh, and many of us as well. We do this from a humble place, recognizing that uh, we often succumb to uh, and give into the easier and the more comfortable uh, and the more beneficial to self uh, version of Christianity that's been so widespread uh, and so available to us. And so uh, that's what we do every week is we take a a topic or a passage uh, of of scripture or something related to our walk with Jesus and we examine uh, whether or not that aligns with how we ought to be living biblically, uh, how uh, that aligns with Jesus's call on our life to put him at the center uh, and to uh, deny everything else for the sake of knowing Jesus. And so today we're going to jump into uh, talking about conflict resolution and what a healthy conflict uh, resolution might look like. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to take a second uh, and let you guys know that in the show notes uh, for each of these episodes, uh, I've got links down below to uh, our social media our social media stuff on other platforms, uh, as well as links to join uh, our email newsletter if you're interested uh, in staying up to date with what we have going on. We have some exciting stuff we're releasing uh, here in the month of May, and so you don't want to miss out uh, on that. And as always, uh, if you're not doing so already, follow the show, subscribe, make sure you turn on uh, the notification so you don't miss uh, any episodes. Uh, with that said, let, let's get right into it because uh, conflict resolution is uh, an interesting topic and, and one that I believe uh, should be a more normal conversation piece for Christians uh, and for uh, the church. And so uh, before we do that, we're, we're going to talk about just conflict by itself because uh, everybody feels differently about conflict. Uh, you know, you can take all the personality types uh, in the world and, and you know, learn about uh, yourself as much as you want. But the reality is uh, some of us like conflict, some of us hate conflict, some of us avoid it, some of us jump right into it. Uh, and then on top of that, some of us do it well and others of us do not do it well. Um, in fact, some of us who love conflict, <clears throat> talking about my uh, younger self here, some of us who love conflict, and don't do it well uh, are disasters just waiting to happen. And then others of us uh, who do conflict well but don't engage in it, uh, we might be robbing uh, other people actually of the opportunity to have healthy conflict. So uh, what I want to say about conflict is that it is a normal part of relationships. Really, uh, a lot of conflict stems from uh, either opposing desires uh, or <laughs> sometimes just like awkward comments uh, or um uh, yeah, things that were said, sin often, right? Mean comments that were made or gossip or flattery uh, or these sorts of things. Uh, and so conflict is a normal part of relationships, whether that's uh, within families, whether it's within marriages, friendships, at the workplace, uh, every relationship that we have will experience conflict. And that's not actually uh, a bad thing. That just makes sense when you put two people who are different in a room together together. Uh, 
the longer they talk, they're, the greater the likelihood is that they run into something on that they disagree with or that they don't appreciate the way that the other person said something uh, or that they misunderstand each other, uh, right? And so, and so uh, no conflict is not a sign of a health in a relationship, but actually when you experience conflict in a relationship, I believe it reveals the amount of health that is there. So if you are in a family and there seems to be no conflict uh, amongst uh, your immediate family, Uh, there's two ways to look at it. There's the one way uh, that is the comfortable way, I believe, which is to say, oh my gosh, we, we must just have everything right. Everybody's perfect. Nobody has uh, any complaints or anything like that. uh, And just ride along with it. Uh, But then there's a second way to look at it. And this might lead you to that same answer. But the second way to look at it is to say, uh, have we created an atmosphere where uh, it's comfortable for there to be conflict? Right, and then and then we can approach individual members of the family uh, and make sure that everything is going on, or everything that is going on uh, on the surface is actually what's happening uh, on a deeper level as well. Same thing is true uh, in a marriage. If you have no conflict uh, in your marriage, uh, I mean, granted, maybe there's a honeymoon period uh, in the in the beginning, but but if you have no conflict in your marriage for a long time, and it just seems like everybody is uh, happy-go-lucky with everything that's going on, uh, I mean, I guess that's. Is it possible? I don't know. I'm questioning myself now uh, as I'm talking. My gut says uh, that that's not wouldn't be a sign of health in your relationship, uh, but the sign of health for your relationship would be how conflict is handled when you experience that in your marriage. And so uh, I would say the same is true for friendship. I would say the same is true uh, in the workplace. If you have a job environment uh, or a, uh, you work in a ministry environment where uh, there's never any kind of conflict, but everybody is just, uh, you know, nobody steps on anybody's toes and everybody uh, is is all good with each other all of the time. Uh, that to me actually doesn't doesn't scream health. That, uh, that screams unhealth or fear uh, or uh, manipulation or something like that. Uh, whereas the reality is if there is conflict, uh, that would make sense because that's normal. Uh, the thing that we're shooting for is to deal with that in a healthy uh, and God-honoring way because the reality is that conflict is often handled pretty poorly. I think about my own self. Uh, all of these are uh, examples from my own life of ways that I've handled conflict in the past. Gossip, uh, flattery, passivity, passive aggression, just plain aggression, hiding behind technology, like the list goes on and on uh, for various ways in which I have handled conflict poorly, right? Uh, Just a a couple examples, right? When I was uh, younger in high school, specifically, I would handle conflict with uh, just kind of like plain aggression, where I just thought if I went into it hard enough, uh, the other side might just back down and I would get what I wanted, Right, uh, and even as I got a little bit older, uh, and I do this now probably, I, I hide a little bit behind technology. Like it's easier to send an email uh, or a text uh, about something than it is to talk to the person in person uh, or to pick up the phone and give them a call. Uh, and and so uh, these are some of the ways in which we we might handle conflict poorly. Uh, and usually, in my experience at least, uh, when we handle conflict poorly, uh, it's not because uh, we long to be malicious to the other person, but I think it's because we have like selfish motivations or selfish desires that pop up sometimes. Uh, And so uh, we don't, 
you know, we talk about it behind somebody else's back. We gossip about it, uh, not because like we want to hurt the other person, but because it's more important to us that we feel understood by somebody else around us than it is that we dealt with a conflict in a healthy way. So if I know that, uh, you know, I'm in a conflict with Bill and I know that Bill uh, might not see my point of view, I might go to my friend Johnny uh, and talk to Johnny about it because Johnny's going to understand and agree with me because we're just, you know, being buddies over the situation. And that makes me feel better than doing healthy conflict with Bill. So, uh, again, I think selfish kind of motivations, uh, desires, a longing for us to feel good about ourselves drives uh, some of these ways that we handle conflict poorly, uh, which is sad because if you think about it, the reality is, is that the church should be the place where conflict could be handled in the most healthy way, and Christians ought to be a prime example of how conflict should be handled uh, in a healthy way. I think the Bible uh, would back this up. I think there's a lot of scriptural evidence uh, for Christians dealing with conflict uh, in a way that is different than the world, in a way that actually uh, is an example to the world uh, of what healthy relationship, uh, love, forgiveness, uh, mercy, those sorts of things can look like. Uh, but the three reasons uh, that I thought of as I was preparing for this episode uh, that explain why the church should be the place where conflict's handled best and why Christians should be a prime example of that are that, number one, the gospel permeates everything for the Christian. The gospel permeates everything. Everything we do uh, is is driven by the gospel. The gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came down to earth and died for our sins and paid our price, that we might live uh, in eternity with him. And so because of that, that changes the way that we treat everyone. I recently read the book, What's So Amazing uh, About Grace by Philip Yancey. And he makes the point in here, it's originally made by, by C.S. Lewis at a, at a conference discussing world religions. And uh, the men are, are discussing for several hours, uh, what could be Christianity's unique contribution to the world? You know, is it monotheism? No, there's other religions that have that. Is it, is it uh, marriage? No, there's other religions that support uh, marriage. What is it? What is Christianity's unique contribution to the world? Uh, and they can't figure it out. And C.S. Lewis walks in and he's like, what's all the, the hustle and bustle about? You know, and they said, well, we're trying to figure out what does Christianity offer the world uh, that no other religion does? And C.S. Lewis says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And when you think about it, it's true. The, the greatest thing that Christianity has to offer to the world is not, uh, you know, all the things that uh, you have to do to check off this list. It's not, uh, you know, the things and ways in which you should be involved in the church. It's not uh, any of those things. It's the fact that by no work of your own, you've been saved because God loves you. And that's different. And so because that's how we've been loved as Christians, we are called to love others in that same way as well. And so we look at people when we're in conflict and we see the gospel. We see an opportunity for the gospel to permeate that situation. We see a time when we were in desperate need and someone gave us what we did not deserve, forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. And we look for opportunities to give other people what they do not deserve, grace and mercy. That's number one. The gospel permeates everything. The second thing uh, that proves that the church ought to be the place where conflict is handled healthily is that our need for a savior uh, in Christianity is really is the bottom line. And so the gospel permeates everything, but the gospel uh, is, is contingent upon the fact that we needed saving. And so because we know that we need saving, we view other people as people who need saving as well. We don't look at other people in a situation of conflict. Well, we do, but we shouldn't. 
look at other people in a situation of, of conflict and just be so upset about all the things that they're doing wrong. I don't think that that would be uh, Jesus's heart in the situation. I think rather he would see somebody who's lost, who needs a savior. And because the gospel permeates everything, we remember our own need for a savior and we give that grace. It's very similar. We give that grace to the person in the conflict as well. And we recognize this person needs a savior just like I do. There's nothing about this person or me that, that causes either of us to require Jesus any less than the other person. We're both completely equal in the eyes of God and the fact that we desperately needed uh, a savior. And because of that, that leads into number three, <clears throat> which is that uh, Christians ought to strive to be selfless and to look out for the interests of other people above ourselves, right? And so because uh, somebody loved us when we didn't deserve it, and we know that we need a savior, and we know that everyone else around us uh, is like that, we don't view ourselves as, as better than other people. We don't view ourselves as, as the reason for existing. In fact, we, we look at life as an opportunity to serve those around us and to look out for the interests of other people. And so this plays a part in conflict because if conflict has to deal with opposing desires or places where we've sinned or getting what we want, then to serve someone else and to look out for their interests above your own would dramatically change the way in which you interact in a, in a conflict-driven situation. So those are the three things uh, that cause the church and Christians to be the place where conflict is handled in a healthy way. Number one, the gospel permeates everything. Number two, your need for a savior is the bottom line. And number three, we ought to strive to be selfless and to look out for the interests of other people above ourselves. <clears throat> Uh, but right before we get into a, a couple biblical examples um, of what it looks like to maybe handle some of these uh, conflict situations well, I want to remind us uh, of uh, three <clears throat> kind of basic relationship truths, really, really two uh, basic relationship truths that are true in every relationship uh, that are driven by uh, a scripture and a biblical worldview. Uh, and the first is that we submit everything to Christ and we submit to Christ in everything. I'll say that again. We submit everything to Christ and we submit to Christ in everything. And so what this means is that our relationships, as we're talking about conflict today, our relationships are submitted to Christ. This means that our relationships are ultimately opportunities for God's glory to be shown. Right? So if we submit something to Jesus, we say, uh, this is actually yours. It's not mine. And we know that God wants to glorify himself in every situation. And so if we submit our relationships to Christ, that means that those relationships are ultimately for his glory. So your family, your marriage, your friendships, your job, every relationship, right? Your friendship with, uh, you know, the other parents of your kid's team, uh, your friendship with the barista at your coffee shop, the cashier at the gas station, every single relationship that you have ought to be submitted to Christ uh, in a way that says, God, each of these interactions is for your glory. Each of these interactions is for your glory. The second part of that is that we submit to Christ in our relationships, which means that we follow his lead in the way that we engage in those relationships. So not only do we say, uh, God, this relationship is for your glory, uh, if we did that and then turned and said, but I'm going to live it my way, God uh, wouldn't get as much glory as he, as he could because you're going to uh, live in a way that's not in alignment with how he's calling you to live. But we say, God, these relationships are for your glory. And so uh, teach me how to be in this relationship. Show me how to be a husband. Show me how to be a father. 
God, show me how to be a son, a brother, a sister, an employee, a coworker. Show me how to be a good friend, right? And so we submit everything to Christ. We say, this is for your glory. And then we submit to Christ in everything. We say, Jesus, I want to follow your lead. That should be true in every relationship that we engage in. The second relational truth that I want to remind us of is that we as Christians consider others to be more significant than ourselves and to seek to serve as opposed to being uh, served. And so uh, Philippians 2 Uh, This is a famous passage, right? But it it talks about, Paul is talking about uh, do nothing. This is verse three. Uh, And he says, uh, be of the same mind, right? Well, let's be united in this. We'll have the same love. And then he says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count other people as more significant than yourself. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of your of others. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so what you have here is this uh, radical call really to humility uh, for the Christian and not because... Uh, Uh, God thinks that you uh, are so lowly that you ought to uh, really humble yourself, uh, but because God himself humbled himself. God himself humbled himself for your sake. He had, uh, Jesus came as a man, and though he was God, he didn't use it to his own advantage, but rather he uh, emptied himself and took on the form of a man that he might serve. Another great verse uh, that reminds us of Jesus's attitude towards serving and looking to the interests uh, of others is Mark 10, 45, which says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, God came not for everyone to serve him, but to serve those around him and to give up his life as a ransom for many other people. And so we are called to do our relationships in the same way, right? As Christians, we strive to be more and more like Jesus. And so we strive not to be served, but to serve other people. And so uh, these are our two basic relationship truths that permeate the way in which we do relationship. We submit everything to Christ. We submit to Christ in everything. And we consider others more significant than ourselves. And we seek to serve uh, as opposed to being served. And so really... Uh, that's, that is it. That's the biblical approach to conflict resolution. If you, if we stick with those things, our, our relationships will be so much more healthy. And the way that we deal with conflict, uh, would be uh, glorifying to God. It would be, uh, following the image that Jesus laid out. It would count other people more significant and it would serve those around us. And that sounds like a foolproof way to do conflict and relationship with people. Obviously, it doesn't end up that way because uh, we, we are sinful. We have a difficult time sticking to things. We lack discipline, uh, right? As Jesus said, like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when we're in those moments and your face just starts to feel hot and you're ready to yell, like you're just not going to have an easy time looking to the interests of other people and considering that more important uh, than yourself. But if we stuck to those things uh, and we remembered that conflict's a normal part of relationship. It's actually, it's a very normal part, and it's not uh, the amount of conflict that dictates the health of a relationship, but how the conflict is dealt with that shows the health of a relationship. If we remember those things, then uh, we would recognize that conflict is not a bad thing. It's not something to be afraid of, 
but conflict is actually an opportunity to glorify God. It's an opportunity to submit to Jesus, and it's an opportunity to serve other people. So much more uh, than an opportunity uh, to get what we want or to be served or to avoid something awkward. No, when we think about uh, conflict logically, we actually recognize there is a lot of good that comes from conflict that is handled well. And that as Christians, since we are not given uh, a spirit of fear, we ought to be willing to step into conflict because we know We see those situations as an opportunity for the gospel to be made a reality in my life and in the other person's life. We see this as an opportunity for Christ to be shown, as an opportunity for uh, our need for a savior to be this deep connection that we make with the other person. And so we don't shy away from conflict or or hide behind uh, technology or simply just view it as an obstacle to getting the thing that you want or to being comfortable but rather, because of Christ, we can look at conflict as an opportunity for the gospel to permeate somebody else's life, and we get to be kind of the bearers and the givers of the gospel and of grace to those around us when we engage in conflict resolution in a biblical way. Um, the last uh, thing that I want to touch on is the reality that sometimes conflict stems from sin or from wronging someone or from being wronged. Uh, and so I want to look at two passages in Scripture. They're both in the book of Matthew, one in Matthew 5 and one in Matthew 18, uh, that line up, or, or that outline, sorry, really practically uh, ways in which we can deal with situations when we have wronged someone and when someone has wronged us. Um, and so you probably have heard these passages before, but before you skip over uh, or, or just uh, stop listening, uh, I want to remind you how simple and practical these passages are. So again, Matthew 5 outlines for us what we should do if we have wronged someone. And so uh, I want to read a couple verses for us <clears throat> uh, from Matthew 5. I'll start uh, in verse 21, and I will read through uh, verse 26. It says this, you have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And so this is uh, Jesus right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right towards the beginning. And what he's going to do throughout uh, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is he's going to take hey, and he's going to start with, you have heard it said this, but I say to you that. And he doesn't actually change the law. Uh, but he actually um, extends the law to heart issues and says, you know, you might have said, uh, you might have heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. Uh, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so uh, this is proof that Jesus came, right, not to abolish the law, but to uphold it actually to the original intent of the law. But what he's saying here uh, in verses 21 to 26 is, is really key, and we're not going to get into uh, you know, every, every verse here, but what I want to point out is the fact that Jesus says if you're offering your gift at the altar, like if you have come to worship and to sacrifice the Lord, but you remember that your brother, that somebody has something against you, so this is when you've wronged them, 
right? It's not you don't have something against them, but you remember that somebody has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. Like he's actually telling you, uh, stop worshiping the Lord for a minute. And first, go be reconciled to your brother, which would require an apology. And then come and offer your gift. He even says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. And I think that's important because as Christians, uh, conflict, resolution, and forgiveness uh, ought to be quick things. Because our hearts should be full of grace. We've been forgiven much and we should long to forgive much as well. And so he says, look, if you're worshiping and you remember that you wronged somebody that week, stop for a minute, go be reconciled with them first, then come back and resume worship. And when you go to them, do it quickly, apologize and seek forgiveness. This doesn't come to terms quickly, does not allow for you to sit there uh, and debate uh, the the nitpicky parts of the situation. It requires you to come and to say, I'm so sorry for my part in this. Uh, Would you please forgive me? I can't stand before God rightly without uh, your forgiveness, without me knowing that I have sought forgiveness for you and apologized to you for the thing that I did that was wrong. So practically speaking, in our day and age, what does this mean? Because probably not many of us worship at an altar or bring a gift uh, to the altar at church anymore. Uh, But here's what it means practically speaking, is that uh, if you have wronged someone, which every single one of us has. If you've wronged someone, uh, before you spend time with the Lord, which ought to be your utmost priority, right? Before you do the thing that's most important, go and seek forgiveness and make things right with that person. It's on you, actually, uh, to go and to seek uh, their forgiveness, to come to terms with them quickly. And so this requires uh, humility, right? To come to somebody and to say, I I did something wrong and I'm really sorry. It's not an easy thing to do, especially when you fought tooth and nail uh, to be right throughout that situation. But Jesus says, look, it's better for you to go be reconciled with your brother first than it is for you to actually worship God. So that should show you how important it is to Jesus that we seek reconciliation with those around us, especially uh, within the church. You know, the church ought to be this place that's full of grace because that's a gathering of a bunch of people who have admitted that they needed a savior, right? And Jesus says, by this, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And part of loving one another is apologizing and seeking forgiveness. And so if you've wronged someone, scripture calls you to go to that person and to seek their forgiveness and to apologize. It's really simple. It's not actually complex. I'm like trying to think of more illustrations, but it's not needed because it's so simple. Go seek their forgiveness. Apologize and ask for them to forgive you. If you have wronged someone, that is the part that you play in resolving the conflict that you've caused. The second passage we're going to look at is Matthew 18. Uh, And we've often probably heard this in the context of uh, church discipline, uh, but I believe that it, it applies to personal conflict resolution as well. And so let's look at uh, Matthew 18. I'm in verse 15, and I will read through verse 20. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, uh, equally as simple and practical. This is the other side, though. You've been wronged. Probably you have an easier time thinking about when you were wronged than you do about when you wronged somebody else. But here it is. Uh, It's the same exact uh, practical application. Go to the person and tell them their fault between you and him alone, right? So this is where gossip doesn't have a place. This is where uh, passive aggressiveness doesn't have a place, right? It doesn't say... uh, Send him a cryptic text that makes him wonder if he hurt you in some way. No, it says go to them, tell him your fault. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Like reconciliation, step one. This is the ideal. You go to them and you say, you know, it really hurt me when. Or this was wrong when. And what do they do? If they recognize they've wronged you, they seek your forgiveness. And boom, you've gained your brother. Relationship restored. Now, We're not all perfect, so that's why there's a need for verse 16, which says, uh, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge might be established. So uh, this, but this is also isn't a permission to gossip. I think we need to get that right. This isn't, uh, you know, okay, if he didn't listen, go back to your friends who you already told the whole situation to, uh, and then be like, hey, you know, let's all get lunch with them and we can kind of have an intervention situation. This is, I went to them. I couldn't find reconciliation and reconciliation so important in the body of Christ that I'm going to take one person with me, maybe two with me. And I'm going to have this conversation again in the sight of two witnesses or one witness so that uh, there's evidence when I come back, if he doesn't listen again, now I have evidence that I handled this with grace. I handled this uh, and allowed the gospel to permeate everything. I sought true really reconciliation. I had right priorities. And there would be evidence there of two or three witnesses of that. Right? And great. If that works, wonderful. But if he refuses to listen to them, then you go to the church. Guys, this is like, this is a, a crazy example of how important reconciliation is to Jesus. To the point where like, if you've been wronged and and uh, they won't apologize and they won't uh, you know allow you to kind of forgive them and accept the fact that they were wrong, you bring other people in on it. If they still don't listen, you bring it to the church. It's so important that it would be a church level, like reconciliation and forgiveness is, is a church level issue in Jesus' eyes. And if he doesn't listen even to the church... Then you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which doesn't mean you treat him like trash, because as Christians, we're called to treat everyone with love and respect, and you would still be called to treat a Gentile and a tax collector as more important than yourself, still called to serve them, still called to offer the gospel to them. But but probably what Jesus is getting at here is that uh, you're not probably sharing like table fellowship with them. Right? You're probably not, uh, you know, taking communion with them, partaking in the remembrance of Jesus with them because uh, they're not in the place where they're admitting uh, they're, they're wrong and their need for a savior. And so you break a couple of those things. But uh, a Gentile, a tax collector, would have uh, still been allowed to step foot into the church. They might not have been uh, allowed to take communion or something like that, but they still would have been allowed to be around. 
And so it's not that you break all ties, but it's that uh, you break specific, important, uh, I guess religious is the word, religious ties for them by my Father in heaven. That's a huge point to, uh, to how important it is for us to reconcile, for us to be uh, in agreement with one another where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. He is there. So again, reconciliation, Jesus is saying that's a direct opportunity for me to be present with you, for the gospel to be there, for Christ to be the center of these things. And so this is what happens when we take a biblical approach to conflict resolution. Uh, Ideally, it's quick, it's full of forgiveness and grace. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and submission to Christ. It's a wonderful opportunity for the world around us to look at a radical example of what it looks like to love someone who's different than you because our world can't do it. There's nothing in uh, our secular culture that would allow for a true uh, biblical definition of love for somebody who is different and disagrees uh, and and is in open conflict with you. That doesn't exist in our culture, but it radically exists all over scripture. And so we ought to remember that our relationships are submitted to Christ. They exist for his glory. And in those relationships, we submit to Christ and follow his lead. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Get Your Donut Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard, Rate the show and leave us a review. It helps other people find us and it lets us know how you feel about it. I hope you have an awesome day and that you never settle for anything less than all in with Jesus.